chapter 10. Before we read, I want to bring us up to speed, so bear with me. John, in chapter 1, sees the resurrected, glorified Christ. He's told by Jesus to write what he has seen, what is, and what will take place later. That is the outline of the book of Revelation. What John had seen was the resurrected, glorified Christ. What is, is the church age. Chapters two and three, seven letters to seven chosen churches, but they are messages for the church throughout the church age. Chapter four, John is raptured to heaven. He sees the Father seated on his throne. Around that throne are 24 other thrones where 24 unidentified elders also sit. Chapter five, John sees in the right hand of the Father a seven-sealed scroll. A mighty angel asks a question, who is worthy to take the scroll, loose its seals? And John seems to know what's contained in the scroll. The events that will be unleashed bring about the ultimate redemption of all creation. John weeps long. He weeps hard because for some undisclosed period of time, nobody comes forward who is worthy. Then one of the elders on one of these 24 thrones says to John, don't weep, John, stop weeping. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. John turns to see the lion, instead sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. We know who that is. The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. It's Jesus. Chapter six, the lamb breaks open the first seal. A rider comes out on a white horse. I'm convinced he is the antichrist. He is the false Christ. He's been on conquest, and for a period of time, he gets it. The second seal brings world war, and it's a war unlike any that's ever been or ever will be again. The third is famine. That's a natural result of the war. The fourth seal is open, and one-fourth of the population of the world dies because of this war. The fifth seal, there are martyrs crying out to God, how long before you bring us justice? He says, a little while longer until your fellow brethren who will be killed for the same reason you were killed solely for their faith until that's completed and the last martyr dies. Then justice will come. Then the sixth seal is open. Not only is the earth shaken, the heavens are shaken. Men hide in caves among the mountains. They cry out for the caves, the rocks, the mountains to fall on them, really, and hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The seventh seal. Seventh seal is open, but thank God, before in chapter 8, the seventh seal is open, you have chapter 7, a multitude of Jews and Gentiles saved during this awful time. Then the seventh seal is open. There's silence in heaven for about half an hour. That's a long time. It's the greatest calm before the greatest storm. From the seventh seal come seven trumpet judgments. There are seven angels who stand in the presence of God, and they sound their trumpets. The first brings hail and fire mixed with blood. That's interesting. People are dying. 
hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up and all the green grass is burned up. I don't know. I don't know for sure, but it sounds like nuclear weapons are being used in this final war. That's what it sounds like to me. Second trumpet brings something like a huge burning mountain thrown into the sea. I think it's a meteor. I believe it is. Third of the sea turns to blood. Third of the sea creatures die. Third of the ships are destroyed. Third trumpet, very clearly, we're told, is a great star blazing. And it falls uh, on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. The huge mountain targeted the salt water. Uh, this great star falls on the fresh water. Third of uh, the rivers and the springs. It's called wormwood. It means bitter. Uh, the waters turn bitter and many people die from drinking the water that's now become bitter. Fourth trumpet causes a third of the sun, moon, and stars not to show their light. Uh, no doubt due to all the things that are happening and the, and the particles in the atmosphere. I don't know if you watch the evening news. I don't on a regular basis, but occasionally I catch it. I mean, we live in a day with a click of a mouse. You can get just about any information you want. But I don't know if you caught the evening news, 6.30 news with Brian Williams a few weeks ago. If you didn't, I'm going to bring you just a clip of that evening news. Here it is. Sound would be back. good. We learned today about the threat of such things to our modern world. In the meteor and asteroid tracking business, they call the big ones city killers. And while there was very little good news today about our chances of getting them before they get us, there was some talk about future remedies. Our report tonight from NBC's Stephanie Gosk. Last month, a meteor rocketed into the atmosphere and exploded over Russia, frightening because the shockwave blew out windows and injured 1,200 people. It came out of the sun. It came from a direction where our telescopes could not look. Today at a hearing on Capitol Hill, leading space scientists told lawmakers the U.S. is not prepared to defend itself against meteors of the same size. If you detected uh, even a small one, uh, like the one that uh, detonated in, in, in Russia, uh, headed for New York City in three weeks. What would we do? The answer to you is if it's coming in three weeks, uh, pray. Scientists say they have identified all asteroids large enough to wipe out the planet, like the one suspected of killing off the dinosaurs, and there is no immediate risk. The concern is meteors that are smaller, but still big enough to take out a city. The number of undetected potential city killers is, uh, is very large. It's in the range of uh, 10,000 or more. The probability of impact is low, they say, but at present funding levels, NASA believes it will take almost 20 years to identify them all. What would help is an infrared telescope. The government won't pay for one, but a former astronaut is looking to build the first ever privately funded deep space telescope. NASA is collaborating on the project, but the space agency says it still needs more money to identify and develop ways to protect the planet. A good segment of the population thinks it's just a matter of call Bruce Willis in, you know, and, and you know, notwithstanding we don't have a shuttle anymore. Perfect. Hollywood's version is definitely a bit dramatic. But scientists say there is reason to be concerned. The meteor in Russia was like a shot across the bow. Stephanie Gosk, NBC News, New York. But maybe we'll get, maybe we'll get a telescope. We can at least see it before it hits us. 
This is real stuff. This is not make-believe. This is not sci-fi. And we're reading about it right here in this tremendous book of the Revelation. Chapter 10, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write what they said. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Really? God told us, John heard seven thunders say something. He wrote it down and he doesn't tell us what they said. It doesn't bug you. I want to know what they said. So why in the world would God record for us that seven thunders spoke? John hears what the seven thunders say, but then he tells John, don't tell them. Why would God do that? In John chapter 16, verse 12, Jesus said to his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. That is a possibility. I mean, I've said in our study, a lot of what we're looking at here, while it's true, while these things will happen, some of these things are hard to stomach. Maybe it's just because God's gracious and he says, I've given you enough. You don't need to hear what the seven thunder said. But I think there's another possibility, and certainly this is one. Why does God tell us they said something, but he doesn't tell us what they said? Great verse here, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. I cannot tell you how many people over my many years of ministry now have asked me questions that there's no answer to. They want to know things that God has not told us. And some people get caught up on the things God has not said and not revealed. And don't focus on what he has revealed. Listen, he's revealed quite a bit. All we need to know. George Washington Carver was the son of ex-slaves. He was a gifted botanist. He prayed to God and asked God to show him the mysteries of the universe. God did not answer that prayer. Thinking it was asking God too much, Carver then asked God to show him the mysteries of the earth. God did not. He then prayed that God would show him the mysteries of the human body, but that was still a prayer that God did not answer George Washington Carver. Carver's the man who, after much persuasion, convinced farmers in the South to plant peanuts and sweet potatoes instead of cotton. 
Because southern farmers had planted cotton for hundreds of years without crop rotation, the soil had worn out and the farmers were going into terrible debt due to the failure of the crops. When they finally listened to Carver, sweet potatoes and peanuts in time became number one crops in the south. But the market was not substantial enough for the bumper crops of peanuts and sweet potatoes. So much of the produce was then left to rot in the fields that the farmers began to lose even more money than before. It was at this time George Washington Carver prayed again. You'll never believe what he prayed. He said, Mr. Creator, why did you create the peanut? God then led him back into his laboratory and over time revealed to Carver some 300 marketable products from the peanut, including lard, mayonnaise, cheese, shampoo, instant coffee, flour, soap, face powder, plastics, adhesives, axle grease, pickles, and of course, one of my favorites, peanut butter. (laughs) From the sweet potato, God revealed 100 new discoveries among them starch, library paste, vinegar, shoe blacking, ink, and molasses. Economists and agriculturists agree that Carver contributed more than any other individual in his day to rejuvenate the Southern economy. But it would not have been had he focused on what God did not reveal. He just focused on the peanut. We're going to move on, but maybe somebody just needed to hear that. Stop focusing on what God has not said and focus on what he has said. Chapter 10, verse 5. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. I like it that he's going to tell us this mystery. What is this mystery? It's right here, Ephesians chapter one. Say it with me. Come on. Ready? And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. That's the mystery that's going to be accomplished. When these final seven years known as the great tribulation and the events in them are fulfilled, Jesus says he's going to return. He's coming with the clouds and he's going to set up a kingdom. Before he creates new heavens and a new earth, there's what's called the millennial reign. It just means the thousand year reign of Christ. We are going to rule and reign with Christ for that thousand years. We will be his government agents. In reality, just a reminder, I have my resume in for the Caribbean. You might want to get yours in. Here's the way Isaiah put it. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I call your attention to the middle of this prophetic scripture of the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. When Jesus returns and begins the thousand year reign, he will begin to clean things up and things on earth will get better and better and better and better. Isaiah chapter two puts it this way, and I love it. Verse two, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, will settle disputes for many peoples. I love this next verse. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Please come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, John had a message to proclaim. It's the same message I'm called to proclaim. Might I remind us all, it's the same message You're called, if you're a Christian, to proclaim. Chapter 10, verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It'll turn your stomach sour. But in your mouth, it'll be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That's easy to understand. It's the word of God. It's the truth. And it's a message for the whole world. Many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. God said to Ezekiel, if you warn the wicked man of his ways, even if he does not repent, I will not hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do not warn him, I will hold you accountable for his blood. The Apostle Paul said something I want to be able to say. I really want to be able to say it. The Apostle Paul said, I'm clean from the blood of all men. What he's saying is every time I had an opportunity to tell somebody, every time I had an opportunity to warn somebody, I did. In Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, God says to Ezekiel, you son of man, listen to what I say to you. Don't rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. And it was a scroll which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. It's the judgment to come. It's the great tribulation. 
And he said to me, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. He said, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Same experience as John had is the same experience Ezekiel had. It's the same experience anybody has that knows the truth and shares the truth. It's a bittersweet message. Guess what? Jesus died for your sins and you can be saved. And if you don't repent, judgment. It's a bittersweet message. I don't know if I'm correct, but I believe at this point that we're reading about in the tribulation period, most of the people that are going to be saved are saved. Now, I could be wrong there, so don't quote me on that. I'm, I'm just saying that seems to be the case. I don't know that, though. But whether that's true or not, all the way through the tribulation period, God is warning, God is speaking. My theology changed a few years ago when I finally saw Revelation chapter 14. I believed for years that before the rapture could take place and the tribulation period began, that the church had to take the gospel uh, to every nation because that's what's prophesied. Jesus said in answer to the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And one of the things he said is, the eternal gospel will be preached to all nations, then the end will come. In Revelation chapter 14, an angel takes the eternal gospel and he goes around the planet near the end of the tribulation period and proclaims to every nation, tongue, and language the eternal gospel. And after that is when the end comes. We're still called to what has been termed the Great Commission. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's our responsibility still. Nevertheless, my theology changed. I don't believe anymore that it's the church that takes the gospel to all nations. I believe Revelation 14 is very clear. An angel takes the gospel to every nation before the end comes. God raises up also in this great tribulation period two special witnesses. We're going to look at them in chapter 11, but before we look at them, the first two verses of Revelation chapter 11 to me are absolutely fascinating. Chapter 11, verse 1, I was given a read like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And I'll give power to my two witnesses. Now, before we look at the witnesses, let's just focus just for a minute on the first two verses. One of the first things you do when you purchase a property is do a survey. Why do you do a survey? To find out exactly where your boundaries are. John is told to measure the temple, but exclude the outer court. That's given to the Gentiles for 42 months. Interesting to me, especially in light of Daniel 9, 27. We've looked at that before, just a reminder. The Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel in the middle of the seven-year period, the Great Tribulation, in the middle of the seven, that would be 42 months, that would be three and a half years. 
He puts an end to sacrifice and offering. He sets himself up in the temple and he proclaims himself to be God. The last temple that stood in Israel uh, was destroyed in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt. But for these prophecies to be fulfilled, there has to be a temple in Jerusalem. I believe it can be built in the first part of the seven-year tribulation period. I don't think it has to be built before the rapture of the church. That's just my opinion. It can be built very quickly. And there's a group of Jews uh, at a place called the Temple Institute. They got all the articles ready for the Old Testament uh, worship to be reinstated. They just need a temple. And the temple has to be on the same site as the old temple or it's a violation of scripture. Are you with me? Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 9, and our text before us refer to this temple. And again, Daniel 9, 27, Antichrist breaks a treaty with Israel that he's made and he commands that they stop offering the sacrifices. There is one present problem with anybody, any ruler, uh, that would help the Jews, enable the Jews build a temple on the old site. I don't know if you know what the present problem is. That's the problem. You say, what is that? Around 600 AD, a man named Omar built this mosque on the site of the old temple. And so we call it the Mosque of Omar. We might know it better as the Dome of the Rock. It's a Muslim holy site, Muslim worship center. Why do we call it the Dome of the Rock? Because inside there's a big rock. I've been in there. I've seen it. Let me give you another view of this rock. Now hang with me here. Here's the point. It's not flat. Okay? That's important. It's not flat. Where am I going? March, April edition, 1983, Biblical Archaeological Review. Very smart guy named Dr. Asher Kaufman, brilliant physicist, archaeologist, wrote, it's assumed that the Mosque of Omar, Dome of the Rock, is sitting on the site of the ancient Holy of Holies. But Kaufman says that's not correct. It's really 100 meters north in a little location where there's this little gazebo kind of structure. I've been here. This is an aerial view of the Dome of the Rock. And Kaufman says, no, nah, the site of the ancient Holy of Holies is 100 meters north. That's back behind the gold dome. You might see the little gazebo back there. It's called the Dome of the Spirits. It's also called the Dome of the Tablets. I've stood in it. This is supposedly where the prophet Muhammad on his wonder-faced, or woman-faced wonder horse ascended back up into heaven from this rock. Kaufman says, no, nah, that's not the holy site. That's not where the Holy of Holies was. No, it's over by this little gazebo. Two places. Archaeologists have discovered bedrock that they know is bedrock from the ancient temple. All right? This can't be the site of the Holy of Holies. You know Why? The second place they've discovered bedrock is by this dome of the tablets, dome of the spirit, this little gazebo. It's flat rock. It has not been chiseled. It's flat rock. The Ark of the Covenant could not sit on this rock. It had to sit on a level place. 
Kaufman's got it. The Mishnah, which is the recorded, uh, written down oral tradition of the Jews. The Mishnah says that the priest could look through the opening of the temple and he could see the eastern gate. The eastern gate is off to the right of the Dome of the Rock. But you can't line up where the eastern gate was from the Dome of the Rock. But if you go over to the Dome of the Tablets, guess what? You got a straight shot to the eastern gate. Kaufman's got it. I'm sure of it. Say, what's the point? We know Antichrist will be ruling the then known world. We know he'll have authority. He makes a covenant with Israel, Daniel 9, 27. In the middle of that covenant, 42 months, three and a half years, which is what our text says here, don't measure the outer court. It's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. Here's what I think is likely. Well, it's more than likely. Daniel 9, 27 tells us. Antichrist comes along. I believe he might even help fund or fully fund the, the new Jewish temple. Herod's the one that built the last temple. You know that? He wasn't a believer. He believed in the Bible. He just didn't believe in Jesus. I believe it's very likely Antichrist is going to come along. He's going to temporarily solve the problem that's there right now. Right over here to the left, I don't know if you could see it. If I had a pointer, I could show you. It's called the Western Wall, just to the left and down toward uh, this side. And Jews come um, all the time to pray at the Western Wall. Why do they come pray at the Western Wall? Nothing holy about the wall. It's the closest they can get to where the ancient temple stood because the ancient temple stood on this site where now the Dome of the Rock is and they can't go up there. You, they go up there, we're, we got a real problem on our hands. Bloodbath, civil war, more than that. It's the closest they can get to the ancient temple and the ancient holy of holies. Somebody's going to come along. I think they're going to build a wall. My opinion, I make it my, my opinion. They're going to build a wall. The Jews are going to get their temple on the other side where the Dome of the Tablets is. And the Gentiles will continue to have this side. Listen to this fascinating verse. Ezekiel 42, verse 20, about a temple that's not there now, that will be. So he measured the area on all four sides. It had a wall around it, 500 cubits long, 500 cubits wide, to separate the holy from the common. Let me read it again from the old King James Version. He measured it by the four sides. It had a wall round about 500 reeds long, 500 broad, to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. Don't measure the outer court this side, it's been given for three and a half years to the Gentiles. I don't know if you enjoy that kind of stuff as much as I do. That's cool stuff. But we have to move on. Verse three, and I'll give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's about three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Zechariah chapter 4, they're prophesied there. 
Olive trees because the spirit of God rests on them. Lampstands because they shine the light of truth in this awful day. Sackcloth because they minister in times of grief crisis. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Wouldn't you like to have that ministry, huh? (laughs) This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Sounds like the combined ministries of Moses and Elijah. Now, a lady from our church came up last night, and I've known her for a long time. She said, I disagree with you about who the the two witnesses are. And I said, well, I didn't say who they are. I just said it sounds like they have combined ministries of Moses and Elijah. And, of course, the lady shared, I believe it's it's Elijah because Elijah never died. He went up in a whirlwind, uh, a chariots of fire, really, angels uh, took him up. And then Enoch, Enoch's the other guy that didn't die. I said, well, you know, that's possible, but we really aren't told. You know, don't focus on what God hasn't revealed, what he has revealed. But it's certainly similar to the ministries of Moses and Elijah. Elijah, uh, King Ahaziah sent uh, one of his captains, army captains and 50 men to basically arrest uh, Elijah, the prophet. They come to where Elijah is and the, the man says, hey, hey, man of God, king wants to see you. You come down right now. He says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Fire came from heaven, consumed him and his 50 men. <laughs> King's not giving up. He sends another captain with 50 more men. This captain said, hey, man of God, king wants to see you. You come down right now. Elijah said, if I'm a man of God, may fire come from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And and fire came from heaven, took care of those guys. King's still not going to give up. He sends another delegation, but this third guy, he got some smarts. He learned. He knows what's going on. And he comes and he says, hey, man of God, man of God, please, please have respect for my life and respect for the lives of my men. Would you please come and see the king? He wants to see you. There's a smart guy. It's interesting, before Jesus went to the cross, Luke chapter 9 says, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John, there stood by Jesus Moses and Elijah. That's interesting. I don't know who they're going to be, but they have ministry similar to that of Moses and Elijah. Elijah calling down fire, and then, of course, Moses turning the... Nile and the blood God did through Moses' ministry and all the plagues. Verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, when they finish their testimony, just a little side note, unless we do something stupid, and Christians can do stupid things, stupid is as stupid does, (laughs) but unless we do something stupid, nobody can touch us until our ministry is finished. Now, when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower, and kill them. That's Satan, of course. Their bodies will lie in the great street of the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, so we don't have to guess. That's Jerusalem. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, nation will gaze on their dead bodies and refuse them burial. You read that prophecy 100 years ago, you go, how in the world is everybody in the world going to gaze at their dead bodies? 
but it, no big deal for us. We know, we know every major network's going to be there. It's going to be, it's going to be headline news all around the world. Here's the reaction of the world as they gaze on their dead bodies. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. It's the first anti-Christmas ever. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them, I guess so. Then they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they were glad to go. (laughs) And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake. A tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Good move. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. And what a contrast, as now the two-minute warning has sounded. The end is coming quickly. And things are getting worse and worse and worse on the earth. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Who's saying that? We are. We are. Let's get a head start. Say it loudly, loudly. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Man. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened. Within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. The ark represents the presence and power of God on behalf of his redeemed people. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Here's how I'm going to close. Psalm 2. It goes like this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one, that's Christ. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is prophetic. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. You said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. 
Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. You know how that's most often translated, kiss the son? It's translated worship. Kiss the son, worship him, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I don't care how many times you've heard it. I'm going to tell you one more time. When I was 19 years old, I knelt in my front yard and I repented. And I asked Jesus to come into my life, become my Lord and my Savior. And that day, that day, my rebellion against God ended. That night, I laid my head on the pillow, and I didn't fear death, and I didn't fear hell, and I didn't fear future judgment. Amazing peace. Amazing peace. Amazing assurance that my sins were forgiven, that everything between me and God was right, and it has been ever since. These things we're reading are going to happen. Hell is a real place. And if you leave this life without repenting and receiving Jesus Christ, you'll spend eternity, eternity damned, doomed. That's the truth. That's the bittersweet message. If you repent, wow, man. But if you don't repent, Father, grant repentance to whoever needs it in this moment. In Jesus' name. Heads bowed. God speaking to you. Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Why today? Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. Now is the time. Now is the time to settle it. That's you, Holy Spirit drawing you. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him, and that's what's happening in your soul right now. That's what's happening in your heart. Repent. Just means turn. Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior right now, right now, right here. Just pray from your heart, dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Forgive me. Come into my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Now help me to live for you the rest of this life. In Jesus' name. Amen. You prayed that prayer, Jesus.